0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zepiniak. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We are so glad that you are able to catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. Remember to catch us online if you ever miss an episode. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. We have more than 100 episodes in our archives, so make sure to get caught up and then subscribe. You don't ever want to miss a future conversation.
0: In today's episode, we're talking about the way in which elites of all stripes and institutions shape public debate and some of the challenges that presents for proponents of things like marriage and the family. What's in our mailbag segment this week, Kit?
1: We have a question about meeting with our senators and representatives from D.C.,
0: Outstanding and of course we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we're talking about what you can do at the end of session to make your voice heard. We're now joined on the line by Dr. Daryl Paul, professor of political science at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Dr. Paul actually spent many years living here in Minnesota where he earned his bachelor's from the University of Minnesota along with his PhD in political science. His research and much of his writing is focused on elite ideologies in Western countries and the manifestation of those ideologies in public policy. For any listeners who read First Things, you will likely recognize Dr. Paul's name as he is a frequent contributor to the magazine. Today, we're speaking with him about his book, From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. Dr. Paul, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder program.
2: Thank you very much, Jason. I'm happy to be here.
0: Wonderful. Your research focuses, as I said, on elite ideologies in Western countries. Who are the elites and what are their ideologies?
2: Well, Those are excellent questions and, and I think really important ones as well. So elites is obviously a pretty broad term, but what I generally mean by elite is in a more cumbersome, perhaps, phraseology, the professional managerial class. So people who have professional occupations, but also people who are in uh, kind of high managerial positions in corporations and other kinds of institutions. And the ideology is exactly the kinds of things that I've written about in the book, things like same-sex marriage, transgenderism now, anti-racism is the latest kind of iteration in this kind of cascading set of ideas and ideologies that elites in America are dedicated to.
0: Why do elites seem to be glomming on to ideologies that would, on some level seem to be against their interests in the sense that you talked about elites as a corporate managerial class Yet, a lot of these ideologies foment conflict and division. Isn't that bad for business?
2: That's, it's, it's an interesting question um, because I think you're right that, that the interest of firms and really any organization is to promote certain kinds of cooperative activities inside the firm or inside the organization. And yet, you're right, so many of these ideologies are divisive. I think what firms and and organizations have decided though is that there are right answers to these divisive kinds of questions and that they're going to pick one of these sides. So rather than try to continually mediate conflicts, they're going to say this is the right answer, those are the wrong answers over there, and then quite frankly, use their power to enforce those decisions.
0: Who's educating the elites? In other words, where, where is the uh, intellectual formation comes from? What is shaping the outlook that's embraced by elites today, in your opinion?
2: Well, I have to admit that uh, my institution, Williams College and others like it, are part of this story. This is what elite institutions of higher education do, right? They produce the future elites uh, of the country. And so... Uh, Some of this is being learned inside institutions of higher education. A lot of it is through the media. We see the tremendous success of the New York Times, for example, in this new media landscape, even though so many newspapers and local radio stations and whatnot have gone bust over the last 10 to 15 years, especially because of the Internet. uh, The New York Times has found a way to make huge amounts of money over it. And so as the media landscape becomes increasingly concentrated, Um, There become the certain kinds of correct outlets that one should be listening to and should be reading if one is a member of the elite. The New York Times is a good example of that. But I think it's also in the family. And so much of my argument is that this is a broader class culture that is learned in education, but it's learned in the media, but it's also learned at home.
0: So in terms of the intellectual and cultural formation of today's elites, one would think that good intellectual formation would, might lead to diversity of opinion, yet there's incredible conformity around some of the ideologies and, and programs uh, of elites. What accounts for that?
2: Well, I think every social class has its own culture. And this obviously is not going to be as homogenous in perhaps as large a country as ours is. You might find it more so in smaller countries. But I think what one has seen in the United States over the last couple of decades, say, is a lot less regionalization and a lot more nationalization of our conversations around culture, around politics. And so as I think our elite class has become much more nationalized and increasingly globalized, there's a a clear culture that goes along with that. To be a member in good standing in the class means to absorb the culture of the class. There are, you know, proper ways of carrying oneself, proper ways of speaking, proper ideas to hold. And this goes back, you know, really to the very earliest times of human culture. But what I think is distinct now in America is that there are less of these regional cultures and many more of a na- uh, national cultures and particularly a national elite with its much more homogeneous culture.
0: There's books such as The Great Sort that highlight the increasing fragmentation and isolation of different classes and segments of the American population. Is that Do you agree with that thesis, is that different classes and groups in society are becoming not just intellectually, culturally distinct, but also there is just a lack of human contact with people in different classes, educational and economic backgrounds as well?
2: I think that's pretty clear. And and you're right. There's been a lot of really good books written um, in recent times about this phenomenon. Elites are increasingly sort of segregating themselves off in neighborhoods. There are concentrations of elites in particular parts of the country. So if you look at, say, a state like Mississippi or Louisiana, there's very few elites. That is, professional managerial class people, whereas in the Northeast, for example, there's a huge number of them. And so it's no surprise that New England or the Northeast in general, um, as well as you know, the West Coast states, tend to drive so much of the cultural conversations in this country that's where elites are highly concentrated. That's where there's um, so many of them in just absolute numbers as well. And so parts of the country, the Midwest, the South, um, it's very hard for them to kind of be heard. But also, as the, the culture becomes much more nationalized, those regional distinctive qualities begin to erode as well. And so I think to the extent that these regional particularities continue to exist, they tend to be lower down the class scale. Middle classes or working classes tend to be still more distinct as the elites become more homogenous.
0: Well, the point you're making underscores what Pope Francis talks about when he mentions the politics of encounter or fostering a culture of encounter. How can we build a common good together if we're increasingly isolated from one another, whether it's class lines, geographic lines, cultural lines, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really fascinating point. Is class now the defining fault line in American politics? I think some people thought after the uh, Cold War was over and a lot of talk about Marxism that seemed to fade away perhaps in the 90s, it seems that that class divisions and class struggle uh, are really potent forces in American life. Was Marx right that class struggle is one of the defining features of human societies?
2: <laughs> That's always a loaded question to ask, was Marx right? Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was wrong about so many things, and yet, not wrong about everything. Um, it's it, well, This is one of the things that I argue in, in my book, that to speak about social class is not to be a Marxist. I've studied lots of Marx in graduate school, as one might imagine in my field, um, and and there are some worthwhile and insightful things in Marx's work. but. That doesn't mean that to speak of social class means one is a Marxist. Lots of social scientists, sociologists uh, in particular, speak about social class in a way that's not a Marxist-derived conversation. That being said, my answer to your question is yes. I really do think that the fundamental uh, kind of political units and cultural units in America today are social classes. And it becomes difficult for classes that are not in the elite to really fully engage the elite because, as I mentioned a little while ago, the elite is becoming increasingly nationalized and, and even beyond that, right, globalized. And so when you have fragmented middle classes or fragmented working classes facing a unified elite, it becomes not a very even contest.
0: Turning to your book, which deals with a class revolution foisted on us by elites, and that's the redefinition of marriage. What's surprising about that, I think, initially is that what's at least from the data, folks who are living in, considered elites live surprisingly traditional lives. They've got higher marriage rates, lower divorce rates, children, families, yet. Same-sex marriage, which is by no stretch of the imagination a social and cultural revolution, uh, was really spearheaded, according to you in this book, by elites. What's going on there?
2: It's a really good observation, right, that all of this kind of innovation in terms of family life, at least at the ideological level, is being pushed by elites who tend to live quite traditional lives. So one of the things I do in the book is I spend a whole chapter talking about Family types. And I think that the compatibility of same sex marriage with what I call in the book the blue family type is part of this story. Same sex couples, at least, tend to have higher levels of education, tend to have higher levels of income. They're overrepresented in the professional managerial class. And I think that similarity helped make the incorporation of same-sex marriage seem to be not particularly challenging, not particularly revolutionary. I think lots of the, what I call again, the blue family commitments to controlled and low uh, fertility, to gender equality, even to the point of almost becoming kind of gender sameness, also made same-sex marriage look like quite a non-revolutionary, sensible kind of thing to embrace. And so, I think because of the kinds of families that elites were living in in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, and they looked at same-sex couples—not all gays and lesbians, but same couples in particular—and saw that they looked pretty much like us. And so, I think that similarity made the incorporation make sense, make a kind of a cultural sense to them.
0: Tell us in a nutshell how we got from California voting down marriage redefinition in 2008 to three states voting for same-sex marriage or voting against a marriage amendment in 2012 to the Supreme Court really imposing it in 2015. How did we get there so quickly? Tell us about this revolution and how it was fomented by
2: elites. Some of this is really captured in the title of my book, right, From Tolerance to Equality. The way that elites talked about Um, both homosexuality in general and same-sex marriage in particular throughout really the 1980s and into much of the 90s was through this language of tolerance. But afterwards it became a language of equality and I think that switch, if you will, was part of the story. I think a lot of people thought that they were just simply extending toleration when in fact there was a much different kind of project, a project of of redefining marriage um, that was involved in this whole process. I think also what one saw was a commitment by elites in the early stages but it was so concentrated among elites that there was a problem of a democratic engagement with this story. And so that's why, you know, up until the very end of this process of debate, <clears throat> excuse me, in the United States, you saw all the referenda against same-sex marriage or for one might say traditional marriage, they all passed, because states that thought that those referenda might fail, or states where you had a lot of elites who supported it, but the masses didn't support same-sex marriage, you didn't get referenda at all. And so my state, Massachusetts, is an excellent example of that. Massachusetts, of course, was the first state to have same-sex marriage. And the reason that Massachusetts was the first state was because our Supreme Judicial Court decided that we had to have same-sex marriage. And the legislature in Massachusetts was very, very afraid that there might be a referendum on this issue, because they thought that the citizens of Massachusetts would probably overturn the court's decision, that is, have a constitutional amendment. And so they were absolutely determined not to allow this matter to go to referendum at all. And so this process kind of winds itself out. and. And, and over time, over the <clears throat> kind of expanse of these referenda, you begin to get changes in public opinion. And so by the time you get, say, for example, to the Minnesota referendum in the states that were not sort of the most elite, but sort of middle range elite states like a Minnesota, public opinion had switched enough over the course of that time that even kind of middle class people began to endorse it. And so it was possible for the Supreme Court, right, in the uh, Windsor and the Obergefell decisions to simply mandate same-sex marriage on the rest of the country because not just elites, but then some of the other uh, classes in kind of the middle had embraced it by that time as well.
0: Tell us about the way in which you can talk about a legal victory at the courts and a political victory, but really the the push is about not just legal equality, but social equality. And this is where corporate America, the media and the entertainment industry, higher education, all of these institutions of elite opinion and culture have really kicked it into high gear and continue to this day. That hasn't let up.
2: Sure. Uh, One of the things that I think people used to be surprised at, probably not so surprised anymore, is how kind of left-wing corporate America has been on cultural issues. And they've been there for quite a long time, really since the 1990s. Or the 90s there's kind of this transition period, if you will, from corporations being somewhat conservative, if you will, on cultural issues to being quite uh, far on the left. And so corporations have been a, a big part of this story and, of course, the media, at least the elite media, right, the, the major newspapers, the television, uh, news networks, etc. Are pretty homogenous in terms of their cultural outlook. Obviously, with the internet, there's all kinds of other voices one can hear, and and there are sort of radio stations like this one, but they are certainly subordinated in terms of kind of power to uh, the mainstream voices, and the mainstream voices pushed consistently one side of this story throughout the entire period of debate. And so Perhaps no surprise that when one gets the same message repeated over and over and over again by all the elite institutions, whether they're corporations, media, universities, hospitals, etc., etc., it's pretty clear where the power lies, and it's pretty clear where the society is trying to be taken, and it takes a tremendous amount of effort to resist that.
0: It seems that elite opinion changes, and, and yesterday's battle uh, flips from gay rights, for example, to trans rights. Is the playbook the same when, you know, when the an elite culture tries to create a social change? Is the playbook always the same, or is something different being done this time? It seems like all the same players are back for this battle, but is the playbook different?
2: I think the playbook between same-sex marriage and transgenderism is the very same playbook. Although I question in the very end of my book on whether the similarities that elites see uh, between themselves and transgenderism is is really there, because I think there was a lot of similarities between elite culture as it already existed and same-sex marriage. But going on to anti-racism, I think <clears throat> that becomes a somewhat different playbook because I think the issues are different. The issues of race are a bit different than the issues of sex or sexuality or gender identity. So at least in terms of transgenderism, I, I do agree. I think the playbook is exactly the same.
0: Obviously, these are powerful institutions. that, And, you know, as Tocqueville talked about democracy in America, we have to sort of outsource our opinions to the media and different other organs who we trust because we can't possibly follow all the issues. But what accounts for the way in which these movements almost sweep like mania uh, over the populace and, and get otherwise, you know, and just generate a conformity of opinion so, so quickly? Are there particular tools, devices, strategies they use, or is it just peer pressure?
2: My response is not kind of nuts and bolts, I guess, because I'm not sort of a a scholar of social movements, for example, or of the media, there are certainly ways that institutions, say, for example, in the same-sex marriage legal cases, there were clear choices that social organizations made, activist groups, for example, um, to say, we're going to pick this couple in this state because we think this judge will give us a decision that we like. And so there was a lot of strategy in that way. But what my work is trying to do is to give a much broader background to that, because there's obviously questions about, well, why why is it this judge? Why is it this state? Uh, Why is it this case? Why are these, uh, this couple particularly, um, uh, you know, sort of easy to to win a case? They're, um, they're, They're sympathetic in some way. And so the deeper background that I try to focus on both in the book And then especially, I I unroll this in some uh, first things pieces that I've written over the last couple of years since the book came out, is this culture of what I call at least the therapeutic. And I think that same-sex marriage and transgenderism, and even anti-racism, kind of the latest mania of uh, kind of elite cultural interest, fits so well into our culture of the therapeutic. And so I think that Thinking about those kind of deep foundations, and quite frankly, the therapeutic, I think, has displaced so much of Christian culture in this country, that, that that's a kind of a deep cultural foundation that I think is terribly important and explains a lot of, of why we see elites embracing the kinds of things that they do.
0: When you write for a, an opinion journal such as First Things, um, you can do so in a descriptive way to help describe the, the triumph of the therapeutic, one might say, as you just mentioned. But is there, is there also a prescription in your writing? What do you hope that you know the readership of First Things, for example, takes away for your writing? What do you want them to think, feel, and do, for example, as a response to reading about your diagnosis of some of these elite social and cultural movements?
2: I think our conversation a few minutes ago um, gets to the core hope that I have for people who read my work, which is, I think, to embrace this class analysis, because I think it explains so much, and to not be afraid, um, because I think lots of Christians, Catholics, um, have kind of grown up with this sense that, well, anybody who does class analysis, that's Marx, that's Marxism, that's the left, that's dangerous, that's what we're fighting, that's what we're opposed to. When I think that Christians need to embrace a class analysis, I think we need to see that um, corporations and the professional managerial class are... are not our friends for the most part. It's not to say every single one of them they don't want to make that broad a brush, but, but in general, they are not. And these are the kinds of issues or kinds of lenses, I think, if you will, that we need to increasingly see politics through. And so this can help, I think, tremendously in getting out of old ruts, getting out of old political ruts of what I would say, kind of rerunning the greatest hits from the Reagan-Bush days of the 80s and early 90s. We're just such a different society from that time. And I think it is important for us to stop sort of thinking of, you know, how do we get the government out of this and that? How do we uh, let the market act more? How do we allow free enterprise to thrive? Those are questions and answers were given to those kinds of things 30 and 40 years ago. We need different kinds of questions, because um, we, we desperately need different answers.
0: So grunting about my free markets is, is not the answer, is what you're suggesting, uh, like like
2: that, that <laughs> trying is, to return that, to the that, 80s. That, that is very much my answer, and I know that, that there are Christians who differ on this with me. There are people like David French, for example, who still is very much committed to you know a, a kind of a small-L liberal, if you will, approach. Um, and 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 focusing on sort of winning fights on, for example, religious liberty. I certainly don't want to suggest that Christians should just abandon the fight for religious liberty, but that can't be the end point, and that can't be the end point in politics either. If we want to do things like rescue the family in this country, which is in in trouble in many many ways, uh, there are things that. The state can do, for example, um, child allowances and, and, and people like Marco Rubio, for example, in the Senate are increasingly interested in and also Mitt Romney are increasingly interested in these kinds of things, things that the state can do to help families thrive. That's something I think that we should embrace rather than thinking about trying to get the state out of, of family life, for example.
0: The state is responsible for provisioning the family. A great way to end and a provocative way to end. Uh, Dr. Darrell Paul from Williams College, thanks so much for joining the Bridge Builder today. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
2: So I have a personal website at the Williams College uh, website. So the Williams address is williams.edu, and you can find me there. Um, My book is uh, published through Baylor University Press. And you can find it there. And also, um, you can go to First Things. And I have uh, something new coming out this summer on anti-racism, if you're interested in looking for that.
0: Outstanding, Dr. Daryl Paul. His book is From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. Great conversation today. Thanks for joining The Bridge Builder.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation. And I just want to put in a plug for Forest Lake Senior High School, of which I am also a proud graduate.
0: Okay. very good. Thanks so much, Dr. Paul. And we'll be back in a moment with our bridge, or with our mailbag segment. Excuse me. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now it's time to jump into the mailbag. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag?
1: Yeah, so as our listeners will know on The Bridge Builder, we're often talking about the importance of making your voice heard on the local level. Most of the Minnesota Catholic Conference's work is here on the state level, but occasionally we do ask our advocates to speak up on national issues. And over the past few months, we've been asking members of the Catholic Advocacy Network to urge their members of Congress to oppose the Equality Act and so following up on one of our action alerts, we got a question from a network member who wants to know simply, how can I meet with my senators and representatives if I cannot make it to D.C.?
0: Well, really a pertinent question related to the Equality Act uh, in light of our conversation with Dr. Paul, a way the Equality Act really about uh, enshrining in particular anthropology of the human person in our law related to same-sex attraction, gender identity, and then suppressing those who disagree. So really a key issue and just underscores the importance of also working with uh, our members of Congress. First off, knowing that you can contact your member of Congress over email or even with a phone call is very, very important. They keep track of the numbers of people who are contacting them about an issue, so it does matter. But coming up on Memorial Day, Congress is scheduled to not be in session in D.C. And instead, they are scheduled to be working in the state. So it would be a good week to actually try and reach out to your representative's office or your senator's regional office. Find out if a time if you can visit with him or her uh, about issues on which you think are really, really important. You can also ask to schedule a meeting while they are here. If you're able to get a small group of fellow parishioners to join you, that can help members of Congress understand there are more people in their district who also care. So it's good to get a group together and potentially reach out and say, can we have a private meeting on a particular question?
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And before we wrap up this week's episode, what do you have in this week's bricklayer segment? How can we start to build that bridge between faith and public life?
0: Well, Minnesota's regular legislative session has finished. As of today's recording, we don't know yet if the legislature will end up in a special session to finalize any budget negotiations or other particular pieces of legislation. However, summer can sort of feel like an off-season season when it comes to being an advocate, but we want to equip you with a few ideas on how to continue building bridges with your legislators even they're not in session, because they're going to come back most likely for special sessions. It's our understanding that the governor is going to extend his peacetime emergency. So it's key that uh, we continue to advocate and work with them, because even if Governor Walz does that, he's going to have to call the legislature back into session. There will be a vote most likely every month on the exercise of those emergency powers. So they'll be engaged this summer on key public policy questions, and we don't want to take the foot off the gas. We want to continue to work with our legislators on key questions. In many ways, summer is a great time to build relationships with legislators because they usually have a bit more time and they're back in their home districts. Connecting with your lawmakers outside of session all help, also helps them know that you are there for them as a resource and not just asking for them. Think of it, uh, if do you want to have a relationship with someone who's always just asking, asking you for things, or do you want to be working with someone who's also being a resource to you and a friend? And of course, that can just begin with the most simplest thing of writing your legislator and saying that you're praying for them, that they may... Act wisely and justly in their time in public office. So in the coming weeks and months, we encourage you to set up meetings with your senator and your representative. Perhaps your parish will have a summer festival. This is a perfect opportunity to invite them to get to know your parish and for your fellow parishioners to share with your legislator issues that matter. Invite your legislators to your public festivals. Just have a little meet and greet. You could also invite your legislators to get coffee with you and your neighbors. Find out what issues they're hoping to prioritize in the upcoming session and share with them issues that are impacting your community. In fact, given the pandemic and the way in which we've all been accustomed, grown more accustomed to Zoom, you can even do a Zoom meeting. Doesn't require anyone to leave their home. Just set up a time that works for everyone. And even in the shortest 15 minutes, you can make a difference. Well, that's all the time we have for today. For everyone on their podcast app, make sure to subscribe so that you know when a new episode comes out. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. Share your ideas for the Bricklayer segment or send us a question for the mailbag. You can leave us a comment on the episode, connect with us on social media, or email us at show at mncatholic.org. And then catch up on any any past episodes on our website at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed
1: day.